Thank you so much, Charlie, and everyone for being here to support. My name is Sal. I am a sex addict, chem sex addict, um, and a slew of other things. And um, I just wanted to say first off that this is my first time at this meeting. And so I hope that I'm not going to violate any boundaries or protocol. Please forgive me if I do, but definitely raise your hand to let me know uh, if and when I do that. Um, I am blessed and privileged to be here to present my experience, strength, and hope story in both my um, sex addiction and my chem sex addiction <clears throat> intertwined, as um, Charlie just explained. And grateful um, to Charlie for inviting me to speak. The special family event he was talking about is uh, my wedding anniversary. I've been married 34 years today to the same amazing woman. Yeah, God bless her for tolerating me for all these years. Um, I've been in SAA, CMA, CAA since 2011, but found ChemSex just in the last year and know I belong there too. Um, you know, what, why I agreed to do this was there's no other better gift than to share the gifts of recovery that have been so freely given to me over the past 11 and a half years since I've been in the program. And please know that it is not my intent to war story, offer any gory details, or to trigger anyone negatively, although I've been given permission to do that uh, to some degree. Um, it is unusual for me because the meetings I attend are pretty, I'm going to say PG-13 rated. So if my share at any point is making anyone uncomfortable, then please make yourself safe by you know, stepping away, praying, or even exiting the meeting if you must. And I am highly ADHD, so please forgive me if I'm referring to notes during my share, and I'm not here to educate on any topic. And so I will go ahead and begin uh, with my inner circle behaviors, which include engaging in inappropriate physical or emotional connections outside my marriage, perusing online sites to find anonymous hookups or for hiring sex workers with whom to act out and use any drugs, specifically poppers, meth, crack cocaine, ecstasy, GHB, uppers, uh, to lower my inhibitions and increase my sexual appetite, including alcohol, uh, masturbation to porn or healthy masturbation more than once a day, uh, bathhouses and any other um, adults-only establishments, dance clubs, unless I am with trusted friends, and contact with any former acting out and or using partners. My clean and abstinent date, which means I have not acted out with another person outside my marriage, and uh, picked up and used any drugs uh, is March 15th of 2015, so just under eight years. All right, we'll begin with what happened. What happened, what it's like now, um, that's the path I wanted to follow. So I was born, and shortly after I, I was born, I was diagnosed with having childhood hysteria in which I held my breath, would turn blue and pass out. This happened from ages one and a half to three. And the reason I would do that is to get attention. And if anyone was taken away, if anything was taken away from me, like my brother yanking a toy out of my hand, I would do this. So I was an attention seeker and grabber from the get-go. Uh, that lasted again about an, one and a half, two years. And the only way to take me out of that fit was for my parents to keep an ice cold glass of water in the fridge and just splash it on my face to wake me up. So that's what happened for about an half, one and a half to three years. So there was some intensity that had already started um, formulating within me. At age six, I had a near drowning um, in a dig that was created by a missile 
during the Indo-Pakistani War back in 66. Uh, it was filled with water from torrential rains. And I was a kid playing with a huge stick, fell in, lost my footing, fell in. And God knows how the um, uh, we had, I don't like to use the word servants, but we had house help. And this um, young man saw me, pulled me out. And um, what I got was a slap in the face by my mom for being careless. And then off my mother and father went to a social event, leaving me in the hands of this um, houseboy, who then proceeded to soothe me by, you know, getting me dried up, changing my clothes, uh, giving me a meal, and then performing the act of masturbation in front of me. And so I witnessed that at age six. Um, I was, and excuse me if I get choked up and emotional, um, I was um, then at the age of eight molested and raped by two male adults who were also supposed to be caretakers in the home. My father had left to set up roots in Canada, and I, my brother and sister, were left in the hands of caretakers, two of the primary caretakers, both men, one in his 30s, the other in his late teens, began to groom me and eventually introduced me to fixate on their genitalia, touch, taste, whatever I was capable of doing at such a young age. I began to enjoy this special treatment so much and was threatened that it would stop if I told anyone. I kept this secret and this continued for a few months until my father asked us to come join him in Canada. Um, so here I was uprooted from what was pretty much a progressively backward country to one of the most progressive ones in of itself was quite traumatizing for me. What it was like, span of 47 years from age 8 to 55, and I'll try to go through this within a reasonable amount of time, although there's a lot to cover. Um, the need to continuously escape, you know, be somewhere else, be someone else, do something else, be with someone else, was my very fabric and what allowed me to thrive, not as a child, but as a child who had adult thoughts, desires, cravings. On our way to the States, we had a stopover in London, and each time we would go out to tour the city, I looked for every opportunity to follow men into the restroom, stand next to their urinal, and sneak peeks at their business. I was only eight years old doing this. Lived in fantasy throughout my early school years, through high, throughout high school, acted out with both girls and boys my age. Couldn't at all focus on my studies because I was more obsessed in imagination of what I wanted to be doing with other boys my age and my male teachers older men. At age 15, I was molested again. I had taken a trip uh, over the summer to stay with my uncle and aunt in New York City. And um, that was the first of two molestations that was going to happen to me that summer. The other one was in my own home when I invited a complete stranger into my, an adult, into my parents' home. And it, it was, it was quite, um, it was quite painful. And then again, in this New York City dark, dingy, smelly, out of commission subway restroom by two men, which was somewhat violent and very degrading. With each of my assault events, I invited or sought out the events. That's what I felt. I asked for it, even in the dark restroom, because I very well could have done my business and left. Instead, the intrigue of doing something with the older men who were camped out in there, 
was much too strong and I approached them before being manhandled in a rough manner. In my late teens, <clears throat> 1978, I had moved to Los Angeles and discovered the best gift a sex addict could ever hope for. Sex clubs, adult establishments, men who introduced me to mind-altering substances to lower my inhibitions, namely inhalants, also known as poppers. Man, was I off to the races. I was 17, and because of whatever morals I had, I welcomed poppers, which I favored to fuel the chaos, insanity, and intensity that I had grown accustomed to, but would pass up on alcohol and other hard stuff, i.e. Coke and other uppers. To this day, I remember the man who introduced me to the brown bottle. He wanted to perform a sexual act on me, which I was resisting, and he asked me to take a few hits to make it easier. It took only one hit, and I was hooked, not even imagining that I would be using the poppers each time I would subsequently act out. At age 18, I contracted hepatitis B through unsafe sex with a male partner. Now, mind you, this was right at the break of the AIDS epidemic. My mother nursed me back to good health through a rigid, healthy, non-fat diet, no medications, and in no time, I was up and about again, only to return to the bathhouses and streets and never giving up on poppers, in fact, increasing my usage. I drank now and then, but never overboard because I knew that after the hep B, I could not put stress on my liver. But when I did drink, it wasn't beer, but hard liquor instead in moderation, but never to a point of passing out or blacking out. I would not allow myself to be down, laid up, for fear of missing out from all that acting out that was out there. My visits to the bathhouses and dance clubs became very regular, almost daily. I would go to the dance clubs, leave there and go to the bathhouses and be up most night into early morning and be, and it was the only way to survive that was to be constantly up. Every visit to a bathhouse would have me act out and use with a minimum of five partners, even participating in group sex. All the while I was out running and gunning the streets of Los Angeles or any town I would visit, people all around me, even those I personally knew, were dying of AIDS, fast and furious. I always convinced myself that it would not happen to me, and it never did, by the grace of my higher power, which was my ticket and permission to keep doing what I was doing. I was oblivious, and I ignored the reality around me and never once bothered or cared to know the harm and damage the drugs could do to me. I began attending private orgies where booze, lines, bongs, bowls were for the taking. I would do just enough to allow me to get back home and then crash. How are we doing on time, Charlie? You're fine. Take as long okay. as you want. Yeah, let's take a deep breath here. Thanks. The feelings that follows that followed always included mental and physical exhaustion, despair, remorse, self-hate, depression, and anger, not at myself, but because I couldn't have more sex and drugs. My body, mind wouldn't allow it. That's what the anger was about. This revolving door behavior continued until age 29, when I thought I had enough and decided to marry, not out of anything, but out of duty, to culture, to faith, to family. It was an arranged marriage. We met only once before getting married a month later. I thought, 
No, I had actually hoped that this was going to cure me. The marriage was built on lies. That was the foundation. So many lies. And it wasn't even two months that the lies took me back out. The guilt and shame from the lies that I was telling my new bride. The acting out and using continued, but a little less getting high, only to a point of ensuring that I wouldn't be so obvious when I would return home. There were times, however, I would return home and my wife would ask me why my lips and fingers were so blue and my face was as white as a sheet. I would lie to her and tell her it was because of an intensive workout at the gym and not enough hydration or that I sat in the steam room or sauna for too long, imagining she bought it. But she could see it and smell the drugs and the sex on me. It was a long and repeated sniffing out of the popper's bottle that would have my heart racing to the point where I thought it would break through my chest cavity and the cause of my skin discoloration. Then came the internet and I was off to the races again, only this time I didn't even have to leave my house. I went specifically to chat rooms, learned to play the game really well and started to meet hundreds of strangers, all men, some sex workers. I also started to pick up male sex workers down a very popular boulevard in Los Angeles. And this was my way to stay connected to my getting my mind candy, the drugs, which I enjoyed because they always worked on helping me to forget the wife and soon-to-be children I had at home and the extended family who loved me. Nothing, no one mattered. It was easy to hide the sex addiction. Although I know I was bringing crap home, the worst of it being crabs and never a debilitating STD. I learned to become and learned quickly to become a functioning drug addict and sex addict. Started once I started seeing one stranger an escort who I connected with frequently. He had everything I wanted, his physicality, his trash and abusive talk, his sexual appetite, his fetishes. He introduced me to crack cocaine and adult toys, dildos to be exact. I engaged in these activities. He played the dominant role in me the masochist, using this every time we hooked up poppers being the most frequently used. Eventually, I would throw a meth shard in the crack pipe and smoke both, hoping I would experience an even greater and better high. After paying him for just one session, he would not charge me anymore, simply asked that I pay for the goods and his travel time to come see me. I sometimes would fly to his city, get a motel and act out and use the entire weekend, only to travel back during the start of my withdrawals or detox not taking anything to help me get through this phase without serious distress. I would get home and want nothing to do with the family, would head straight to the bedroom and crash, sometimes angry if anyone got in my way. My life was twofold, with one half only including the wife, the children, a home and career, and the other half, the sex, drugs, with absolutely no desire for healthy, intimate relations, relationships or commitments with other men. Slowly, I started to see other escorts online and on the streets, seeking out the ones who appeared to have everything I wanted and needed, near-perfect matches in what sexual role each would play with me, and love for PNP, which is party and play, and meaningless and empty conversations. In other words, everything my other life didn't or couldn't offer. Chaos, the insanity, the risk, the danger, even near-death occurrences that were introduced to me at my young age my addict growing ever stronger through each survival episode 
convincing me to go back out for more. We moved from Los Angeles to Phoenix in early 2006. My same activities continued. By now I've had two children and I frequented the bathhouses here regularly and found many ready, willing and mutually interested partners. Between 2008 and 2011, my bathhouse visits and use of meth had escalated to levels where not only was I becoming a danger to self, but to my family, my wife, children, and in-laws who live with us feared me repeatedly by witnessing acts of anger, rage, hostility, hate, violent behavior, sometimes threatening to end my life in front of them. In early 2011, I was let go from a good high paying job due to declining performance. I would go into work, my shift starting midday and ending at 10 every night. I took my meth bowl and fill and would use after work in the restroom, use my personal laptop or phone to find acting on using partners, and then head to the bathhouse or hookups place of residence, party all night, return home at sunrise, try to sleep for a couple of hours, sometimes getting up to use again before going into work again. In late July of 2011, my wife's son, then in high school, I think he was 15, and sister who lived in California intervened and got me into what would be the first of two inpatient treatment centers. I was at the first one for four months, was discharged just before the Thanksgiving holiday in 2011. I held out pretty well until late December of that year. And on the day of my Christmas Eve wedding anniversary, which would have been today, I experienced one of my worst relapses. I disappeared for four nights and five days, family not knowing if I was dead or alive. I was switching between the bathhouses and anonymous partners' homes. In January 20 of 2012, for one last time, I was admitted to a hardcore military-style men's-only inpatient treatment center. I worked the program diligently, never acting out or using while there, but all the while suppressing my feelings and desires to act out with the other men there. After five months, when I was confronted about my subtle predatory behavior through which I was grooming and seducing the men in that community, I became angry and threatened to exit the program. The treatment center fought tooth and nail through their care, concern, and love for me, never once intending to chase me out and instead to call out some of my very natural behaviors and actions unbeknownst to me. I took it as a personal attack and left to go into men's sober living homes. In a period of one year, I lived in several of them. I had planned a trip home and planned an anniversary weekend with my wife and kids that December 2012. I never made it home. I took a detour on the way down and ended up at a stranger's home, acted out in use for hours. My car was towed away. I left my tracker on my phone. My wife knew where I was, saw the car, had it towed away. And I left there and took a cab to the bathhouse and continued to binge, act out, and use nonstop for nearly two days. I met someone at a sex club left with him, got a hotel room, and continued the party and play for another day before crashing from exhaustion. This whole while, no one knew where I was, again, whether I was dead or alive. When I finally responded to a text threatening that the police would be called and that I wasn't welcome home, that the doors to the house had been deadbolted from the inside, 
I took a shuttle back up to, up to the men's sober living, was disciplined and put under close watch and house arrest, which meant no phone use, no privileges, and not going anywhere. When I left the sober living house, I moved in with a man much older than me and lived rent-free by doing the housework and cooking his meals. I never acted out with him, had absolutely no desire to. Yet he entertained many young men at his home and in his bedroom. During my few months with him, I was using in his home and then would drive 120 miles to Phoenix on the weekends to act out and use in the bathhouse or in strangers' homes. It wasn't until April of 2013 that I had so-called cleaned up my act and returned home to accept a job offer. I remained clean and abstinent until March 2015, when the tug and pull from my addict took me back to acting out and using yet one last time. The guilt and shame from this episode, after investing so much of my recovery, being away from family for so long and during my children's most important years, high school and junior high, the burden on single parenting I put on my wife's dealing with an angry and spiteful son, returning back to a good job, working a solid 12-step program, and worst of all, my 14-year-old daughter finding my meth bowl and near-full baggie of shards and confronting me and demanding that I choose them or my addiction. I stopped cold turkey. I've been clean now since that time and have not acted out with anyone outside my marriage. In fact, my wife and I have not been physical for nearly 10 years now, if not longer. Yet to this day, we share the same bed and remain husband and wife and parents. Today, my life is also twofold. My family, home, career, and living life on life's terms and the other is my recovery life. I have done a minimum of one meeting a day, including both in-person and Zoom meetings since 2011. I make it a point to call and connect with three other suffering addicts, sex and drug addicts, chemsex addicts, each day, and to be of service to them as they are to me. I love the mantra or cliche, one call saves two lives, and I believe in that. I meet with, I meet with my sponsor once monthly, set time aside to pray and meditate, even if only for five minutes. And I do one reading from recovery literature. My message in closing is this. You know, my 27-year-old son and others tell me that I'm a miracle. That to the depth I was using drugs and acting out for nearly half a century, it's a wonder that I'm still alive and healthy. I tell them it's no miracle. Miracles just happen out of the sky without any effort on my part. My being clean and abstinent came from a lot of hard fucking work and surrenders. Sometimes many surrenders and turning my will and my life over to a power or a force greater than myself, who I've stopped trying to figure out what it is. I've stopped overthinking or analyzing what that force is because when I do, that I'm looking for an excuse to not work my program. It can be done, but it starts with acceptance. The spiritual principle of step one, that I have a problem. I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable. And that this fucking problem is destroying me and all those around me. And that I no longer want to live this way. Nothing changes unless I change something. Or in my case, a lot of things. Perseverance, faith, hope, desire, willingness, 
all joy words, but the single most important word is action. Unless I do the footwork daily, then I'm stuck in the same spot, unable to take that one important step forward. I really appreciate all of you giving me the time and attention today. And uh, thank you. God bless. And that I'll pass.